Hi there, this episode is an audio rip of a YouTube video. If there are any references to the screen or to the video itself, then be sure to go over to YouTube and actually check out the video, which will be the same title as this podcast. Thanks. Okay, so welcome back to part four in the 80th edition training. Now, we're now gonna start breaking it down. So we're not gonna do part four in one video because it's quite a lot of content. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do chapter 41 in this video, and that's gonna be covering protection against electric shock. Up to now we've done uh, part one, part two, and part three. And what we, what we said in part one is with the layout of the book, we, we said that um, the Part three, assessment general characteristics, is where we look at the requirements at the initial design point with regards to the um, the supply characteristics, the need for maintainability, the need to verify compatibility, the need to consider division of installation, obviously knowing the client's um, purpose and also the maximum demand and all of those things. Having obtained that information, we would then have to comply with the fundamental principles which we mentioned in part one and those fundamental principles said that we must protect against we must protect persons livestock and property from the risks that using electricity can create and that was shocks and burns and all this other stuff so whenever we design a system we have to identify the needs of the client with the assessment general characteristics what we then have to do is choose methods of protection now we also said in part one that we have basic protection and full protection. And we said that basic protection was protection against electric shock in a fault-free condition. So there are no faults. There's no issues with the system. What stops you being able to receive an electric shock in normal use? And we said the common solutions there would be insulation barriers placing out of reach and a couple of specialized scenarios might be isolating transformers. We then said we also needed fault protection. We said that fault protection is protection against electric shock under a single one fault condition. And the common example of those was earthing and bonding and the suitable protective devices. Uh, we also could use a supplementary layer of insulation or an isolating transformer for that. So we did say this and we, we said that basic and fault, two scenarios, one's fault free, one's single fault. Now, we have what's recognized as protective measures, and protective measures, or general protective measures, have to have a combination of these two, basic and full protection. And that's going to be the main focal um, point of this video. It's chapter 41, Protection Against Electric Shock. So, starting at the beginning of that, we have 410, section 410. It tells us, there we go, it deals with the protection against electric, sh electric shock as applied to electrical installations and it's based this on BSEN 61140. Now BSEN 61140 is another British standard which as you can see here, protection against electric shock, common aspects for installation and equipment. So it, it tells you about the, um, the requirements to protect against electric shock. Uh, it basically goes along the line of 
and it says here the fundamental rule of protection against electric shock according to this standard is that hazardous live parts will not be accessible and accessible parts will not become hazardous life and this is a very obvious principle and that is given in this standard and it's taken out of this in manufacturing standards in plant standards in equipment standards and obviously in our wiring standards as well here but that, that's that's an obvious fundamental thing but that's what we need to verify and that's where this comes from so um scope we have there this chapter specifies the essential requirements regarding protection against electric shock. It includes basic protection and fault protection of persons and livestock. It deals with the application and coordination of these requirements in relation to external influence. So, we, you know, deciding on the ways to apply basic and fault protection. General requirements. In the standard, the following specifications of voltage is intended unless otherwise stated. AC, RMS and DC. Right, so, here's the first mention of these protective measures. So, reminding ourselves now of basic, full, uh, basic protection and full protection. So, basic protection there, we have live parts in an enclosure. So, inaccessible, can't touch them. Full protection, live parts, fault condition, exposed parts become live under a fault. If it's a class one or a metal in case appliance, it can become, you know, so it's an exposed conductive part, can become live under that fault condition. We then have protective earthing and bonding to take that fault away. If it was obviously class two construction, it would be insulated, then we still would not receive a shock because it's not an exposed conductive part. So this is basic protection, this is fault protection. It's very important that you just try to keep repeating that in your mind as we go through the rest of this chapter. Because, again, common common exam questions could say, which of the following achieves basic protection, or which of the following is a method of fault protection? And so you've always got to understand what basic is and what fault is, and when we get towards later into this chapter, you'll, you'll make, it'll make more sense um, how they could use that in your exam scenario. So, 410.3.2. Protective measure will consist of an appropriate combination of the provisions of basic and independent provision of fault or enhanced protection provision which provides both in the same scenario so we must have basic protection and we must have fault protection at all times within our electrical system for it to comply with protection against electric shock now there are specialist scenarios um, which we'll mention towards the end but when we say um, a protective measure we need to say well okay some protective measures are good for specialised locations, such as placing out of reach or, or non-conducting locations. But then we need to say, well, there must be a specific uh, protective measure that is you know, more applicable on the wider range. So we can install it in the home, we can install it in the workplace, and not, not, not need to make sure that those places are guaranteed um, occupancy by electricians and people monitoring the use of those systems and that's what we call general a protective measure and those are given in 411 sorry 410.3.3 .3. so it says in each part of an installation one or more protective measures will be applied taking account the conditions of external influence the following protective measures generally are permitted 
and these are the ones we're going to focus mainly on in this video. So we have automatic disconnection of supply, known as ADS, double or reinforced insulation, electrical separation, and it's important to know that this is for one item of current using equipment only, and then extra low voltage via the provisions of self and pelve. These are classed as general protective measures and they are accepted in the uh, ordinary person environment. Okay. So throughout this, as we go through, we're going to remind ourselves of how, you know, with this is ADS we're talking about now. So this is automatic disconnection of supply. Okay, 411. If you go down to 411, we're discussing the very first protective measure. So in this protective measure, we achieve basic protection by simply installing cables that are always sheathed. And when they're no longer sheathed, so we've removed the outer sheath, they are in an enclosure. So whenever you're doing an EICR and you see a cable, you know, you know, and you're not in an enclosure, you're not in a in a controlled area, you're just wherever, and the sheathing has been stripped back beyond the accessory, and you maybe have a little bit of brown or blue visible, you've got to start saying to yourself in your mind, well, that is actually now failing to achieve compliance with the protective measure of ADS. And it, you know, sounds a bit, you know, um, obvious, but it's important that you remember things like this. Same as barriers, obstacles, and enclosures. You know, if we have lids missing or or um, if we have doors that won't lock. You know, we've always got to say, well, what is that achieving from an electrical perspective? Okay, so basic protection is, commonly, is often achieved with those. Now, with regards to full protection, we most often would utilize a bonding scenario and a earthing scenario for our final circuits and they, we have to combine those because if you remember what we said way back in the first video we said that earthing is there to limit the duration of these faults the duration of the earth faults the bonding is to limit the value of potential of those faults so I have to have both if I don't have earthing I'll just have a low value of voltage in a full condition but for a very very long time if I if I just have earthing then I can have this very 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 quick full scenario but could be at a magnitude that's really high and is rather dangerous so we have to have those working together and that will only work though if there is a device protecting the circuit that will identify the uh, the large current and will actually operate that and that, that's the whole that's the whole principle of ADS, isn't it? So we we probably are very familiar with this. Uh, we we chase after this with testing courses and with other areas where we do things like this, the um, the good old earth, earth fault loop return path here. So you have your supply transformer. This could be uh, you know it could be on site if you're on a large site with its own you know dedicated supply. It could be that it's down the road behind a, you know, behind a gate or in a little fenced-off area where all the f footballs and frisbees end up getting lost, you know. But this is your supply transformer where the 
the distributor takes their high voltage from the network grid they will then step that down to low voltage and then as a ring main it will be distributed and then you'll pick up on that that's quite often how it will happen in the rural areas so then there's this distribution cabling which will come to your intake position so this is the supplies cable and then you have your intake position here so this is your your main service head your main intake your main switch room and then you have your final circuitry to your final point of utilization and you have your exposed conductive parts and we know these terms um we're not we're not doing a testing course so i'm kind of going through these fast but we have our supply loop known as the ZE. we have our internal loop known as the r1 r2 and then we have the overall loop known as the zs um <clears throat> That formula, um, I haven't actually got it written down here, but the formula um, ZS is equal to ZE plus R plus R2. It's not written in the document, but that could be a question because they always they they always throw that kind of thing in there just to kind of see if you understand the principles of ADS. And it's a common way to illustrate the principles of ADS, having to ensure that we have an overall loop of impedance that will actually achieve a significantly high fault current. So you know, do make sure you're familiar with that and the purpose of this uh, this whole whole uh, whole scenario. Okay, um, we'll come back to this and I'll I'll talk I'll talk us through this as we as we push through um, section four eleven. So with regards to basic fault protection, it just says this is back to general four one dot one. It says uh, basic protection is provided. Uh, barriers are closed in the corner with and it tells you to go to 416 or it says to uh, consider the other regulations now 416 if you actually turn to it that just tells us typically about um, uh, you know um, the the installation being to IP2X or IP4X horizontal top surface IPWXB IPWXD um, insulating properties really that just that's all it gives us and that's all we really need. And it then says full protection by protective earthing, bonding, and automatic disconnection in case of a fault in accordance with Form 1.3 to 1.6. And that's really where a lot of the content of this section will come from in the fault protection part. So, a requirement for basic protection all equipment shall comply with one of the provisions for basic protection described in section 416 or where appropriate, 417. For full protection, protective earthing and protective equipotential bonding. So for earthing, the exposed conductive parts will connect the protective conductor under the specific conditions for each type of system earth as specified in Formula 1.4 to 6, which we'll come to. Now they represent TN systems, TT systems, and IT systems. Simultaneously accessible exposed conductive parts will be connected to the same earthing system individually, in groups, or collectively. Conductors protective earthing will comply with chapter 54. Chapter 54, which we'll come to obviously later on, that's the sizing of the earthing conductors. Circuit protective conductor will be run to and terminated at each point in the wiring and each accessory except a lamp holder that has no exposed conductive part and suspended from such a point. So, you know, your typical ceiling rows. Um, with regards to the earthing then, uh, this just further illustrates the the ADS and how this 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 slide just illustrates how ADS works and how the impedance 
will result in the voltage presence on different cables. So in an earth fault loop, there's the higher voltage across the earth, and that's the intention the intention here of ADS. But we'll actually summarize this as we get through. Earthing and bonding. So the earthing, we establish the supply earth arrangement, main earthing terminal, and we go off to the final circuits. Now this just this is a simple illustration. You could say this is a TNCS, I guess, considering I guess I guess that's a bit a bit rubbish, but that's what that's supposed to look like. Uh, do remember that we said in definitions part two video about that poor illustration at the back of the definitions and how it illustrates uh, the main protective bonding conductors, the circuit protective conductors, and the uh, supplementary protective bonding conductors, and the main you know you know the main terminals and stuff and you know if you're unfamiliar illustrations like this are a little bit more helpful but they may not use them earthing itself then we just kind of said that we need to identify every single exposed conductive part in an electrical system this is just a, a typical kitchen and and just shows you which parts we need to verify now i'll say i'll be saying a lot now but i'll also be saying a lot more when we talk about bonding that when we do verify the need for supplementary bonding, um, we will all what we'll try to do is take a value of resistance measurement between accessible exposed conductive parts. So the question of whether or not we need to have supplementary bonding, which we'll come to very soon, will be dictated by the the um, the value of resistance maybe from from this. Say that this is on a cooker circuit, and let's say that there was a pipe or something that was connecting to this piece of equipment, and that there was a touch touch a voltage between the two um, only if they're within arm's reach of each other for the normal user or the normal occupier of the installation would we need to consider the the um, the, the the need to have supplementary bonding but obviously with things like RCDs that's becoming a lot lot more unlikely um, uh, and, and again we'll get touched on this a little bit early but we'll be getting to uh, earthing and bonding or more importantly bonding and the voltages as we push through but um this just illustrates how much of the actual location requires protective earthing all this class one all these class one items of equipment will become exposed conductive parts of the electrical system and so zs's are very essential to make sure that these things will disconnect in the required time frame echo potential bonding then for in each installation main protective bonding conductors comply with chapter 54 Again, sizing of the bonding conductors. Shall connect the main earthing terminal, extraneous conductive parts, including the following. So water installation pipes. We have gas installation pipes, other installation pipes, um, for example, oil, you know, central heating, air conditioning, exposed metallic structural parts of the building, RSJs or whatever. Then says metal pipes entering the building having an insulating section at their point of entry need not be connected to the protective echo potential bonding. This this is actually um, new in the 18th edition, but this this has been around for years now. It was in the on-site guide recently, but a lot of electricians still kind of get confused over it because they they assume that if it comes in, it can pick up a reference point of Earth. Um, it may internally pick up a reference point of earth from a, from a CPC, but that again is common to the main earthing terminal and so isn't a need for main bonding. Now there was a mention of 
bonding the branch pipe work, which can obviously confuse some people. Um, the regular this actually this is the regulation here. So, you know, this is a picture that I took in the kitchen. This was just under the kitchen counter. The water came up as a insulated pipe. Then it was um, copper pipe thereon. I could easily have done a measurement. There is in guidance notes three. There is a value of resistance. It's you know it's a high kilo ohm value, twenty two odd kilo ohm, but it gives you the understanding of whether or not this would be warranted as an exchange conductive part. Um, but fundamentally, it, it it didn't need bonding. Um, but then I'm I'm not I'm going to go into it very briefly. The requirements of the bond, which we'll see in chapter fifty four, is at the point of entry to the building. So obviously this will come in, there'll be a stopcock, this will come in, there'll be a stopcock, and then obviously we would normally bond there, but not in this case because it's insulated. If this went obviously into the building then, it could become an extraneous conductive part again if it was to go back underground. Now I saw an example like this at a kitchen that I was working on in High Wycombe, where the client had a gas hob and a sink on the island in the kitchen so the service pipes were actually buried in the concrete in the ground and at that point I had to reapproach them as extraneous conductive parts again because they weren't insulated they weren't plastic it was just copper pipe work actually you know can go can go down into the ground and at that point they can pick up a reference of earth so it's 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 frustrating that in the regulations we say we say Bond that pipe as it enters the property. It, what they're trying to do is oversimplify this. They're trying to say that pipe coming in, bond it if it's metal. And if it's not metal, don't bond it. What we need to recognize is if anything brings a zero volt reference to the property. So anything comes from underneath the ground or the foundations that is conductive, that comes in to the equipotential zone that we have created, that is also conductive. If it comes in our equipotential zone, it's providing a stake or a rod of a separate potential. We have to bond that so the extraneous conductive part coming in joins within our equipotential zone. So anytime we have a gas pipe, a water pipe, an RSJ, or a, internally within the building, a pipe re-enter the ground and then resurface, it still needs to be checked that it's a new reference of zero entering our equipotential zone, and we bond the crap out of it. That's when we choose to bond it. What we don't do is say, oh, you know, it's at the point of entry, it must need bonding. Because we can do excessive bonding. We mustn't do excessive bonding. We need to make sure we understand what we're bonding for. Purpose of bonding is obviously with regards to lowering the potential voltages that can occur. So we need to understand touch voltage. There's no real mention on this. or no real um, obvious identifying what touch voltage is in the standard. But what they do do, and we'll see this a bit later on, is whenever there are concerns about the presence of a voltage on exposed conductive parts, or we're relying on RCDs to be a method of disconnection of the supply, we always use a voltage of 50 volts as our limit of voltage. We always say that in the in the presence of this circuit, we'll, in, we'll install a resistance that will, with regards to the IA of the protected device, result in a voltage in the full scenario that does not reach 50 volts plus. That basically means touch voltage. So we don't say it in the regs, but we use it in the regs. So the whole purpose of the bonding is to ensure that between exposed and exchange conductive parts, the voltage in a fault scenario stays lower than 50 volts. Similarly with exposed to, uh, sorry, exchange to exchange conductive parts, the voltage in this scenario must be less than 50 volts. And we'll find, we'll figure all that out with, um, with bonding later on.
Moving back to the whole Earth instant thing though, so we go to Formula 1.3.2. So it says, except as provided by Formula 1.3.2.5, which says if it's not feasible, which on a new installation, you know, it should always be feasible. But if you're working on the existing, I can understand that. A projector device will automatically interrupt the supply to the line conductor or the circuit or equipment in the event of a fault of negligible impedance. Negligible impedance just means low resistance. Between the line conductor and the exposed conductive part or the protective conductor in the circuit or equipment within the disconnected time required by 411.3.2.2, 411.3.2.3 and 411.3.2.4. The protective device shall be suitable for isolation of at least the line conductor, so it must be able to operate as a disconnecting device for the line. Okay, and isolation might just look like an easy word there. We're going to see later on in chapter 53 that, you know, uh, isolation is a method of switching. We need to recognize that the isolating device is recognized in BS7671 as an isolating device. Right. So this is where it gets a little interesting. So, Formal 1.3.2.2, the maximum disconnection time stated in table 41.1, which is illustrated here. Shall be applied, and the, it's very important you understand these little words that mean a lot. Uh, the applied to final circuits with a rated uh, current not exceeding 63 amp with one or more socket outlets and 32 amps applying only fixed connected current using equipment. Final circuits means a circuit that then reaches a final point of utilization. So this is not a distribution circuit. So if I'm going to install a a circuit from the house going down to the shed where there's another fuse board in there that's not this if it's a circuit let's say within the shed going to lights or to sockets or in the house or so that's going to the shower or the cooker these end these are final circuits so a final circuit for 63 amp for one or more socket outlets that's actually increased that's increased from what it used to be um, so obviously we can have socket outlets, plug and socket outlets, uh, 32 amp and 63 amp. So they've now gone up to the 63 amp one. Um, I can understand why. So you know it's a regular point of utilization. I see that a lot in uh, the food industry where I do work. But um, it's a socket outlet circuit. So if you, so a 63 amp socket outlet, single phase or three phase, the big three phase of the big re uh, red C form ones, and you're going to plug that large, you're going to plug that large plug into that socket outlet. Yeah, that will require the the quicker disconnection. Um, but if you actually didn't want that, you could always just change it to a rotary isolator method. You'll have to change the method of utilization there. Uh, and for any other circuit, 32 amps supplying one fixed connected piece of current using equipment. So if I had a shower that was 32 amps, I'll be looking at table 41.1. If it was a 40 amp, it would actually be not within this regulation and it would be within Formal 1.3.2.3 or 4. So let's assume, let's assume that I'm using a 32 amp socket outlet circuit or a, a cooker at 32 amp and so I have a socket outlet circuit up to 63 or a final piece of equipment up to 32. I need this table. The question then is what's my earthing system? If my earthing system is a TN system then I am 0.4 seconds if my earthing system is a TT system, 0.2 seconds. 
we're sticking with AC for this. Alright. So that seemed fairly easy, but we are going to repeat that a lot later on when we start looking at cable selection, because we'll say, okay, we have this cable type, um, and how much you know, how many amps is required to disconnect it. That will always be determined by this part which tells us the maximum required disconnection time so i'll give a scenario later on maybe in part five or, or later on in part four where we talk about a protected device type and the required current to disconnect it um you know for ads and we'll have to find out what that time is so we'll start here it always will start here what's the earthing system tncs or tns it's a tn system tt system okay is it a final circuit or a distribution circuit. If it's a final circuit, then okay. But does that final circuit go over 32 amp? Or is it socket out over 63? No? Okay, you stay here. If you are a distribution circuit, or you're a final circuit over 32, or a socket out of 125, or if you are that high, you move on. And you move on to 3.2.3, or 4.1.3.2.4. Those two regulations, you'll see, say, Okay, so the table's not applicable. So for a TN system, five seconds. For a TT system, one second. Okay, so we're going to repeat that a lot later on. But those are the maximum required disconnection times for general protective measure of ADS. We will see later on that other systems like self systems or reduced low voltage systems will have five seconds as the maximum disconnection time due to the different characteristics of their of uh, the way they protect against electric shock. But for general protective measures, we're looking here at these disconnection times. Okay, um, moving on through a bit. Formula 1.3.3, additional requirements. This used to be called additional protection, really, but it's additional requirements for socket outlets and for the supply of mobile equipment for use outdoors. This has also had a minor change in the 80th edition. So it says, in an AC system, additional protection by means of an RCD with a rated residual operating current not exceeding 30 milliamp, that's why we see them everywhere, will provide for socket outlets not exceeding 32 amp and mobile equipment with a rated current not exceeding 32 amp for use outdoors. Now that 32 amp used to be 20. They've pushed that up to 32. This is the same. They've changed the exceptions. It now says an exception to one above the socket outlets here is permitted where other than for an installation in a dwelling, there is a documented risk assessment determining that this RCD protection is not necessary. They try to, in the public draft of the 18th edition, they actually tried to actually not have this. There was just RCDs everywhere, RCDs everywhere. But there was enough comment on the on the um, on the draft, and they reintroduced the risk assessment approach. But the risk assessment approach is not ex accepted in dwelling in, in dwelling environments. It's just not accepted, um, which I guess makes sense, you know, because the risk assessment for a dwelling is not really, uh, from an electrical perspective, easy to control. The um the you know the labelling of the socket for a dedicated use that's been removed that's not there anymore so now the only reason or method to not have an RCD is a documented risk assessment and 
One of the areas that I see quite a lot um, not executed very well, these risk assessments. So do think about that. We have a new regulation here, Form 1.3.4. This tells us that if we're having any circuit in which a luminaire will be supplied, I mean, you could just say that's light circuits, but I guess if the if the if the socket was if a any circuit was supplying a luminaire, that would come under that then. But they're basically saying in the domestic or the dwelling world. Circuits that supply luminaires need to be on a 30 million bar CD. <clears throat> there could be a number of reasons why they've introduced this. I can expect, though, quite often that it's probably due to the fact that a lot of us will go to the shops and buy these things and then connect them and now are risks of fire for our properties where we, we, we um, you know, I say we, when the, the generic homeowner can go down to the local shed, the local B&Q, buy a luminaire, and have a go at putting them up, putting it up themselves. There's nothing against building regulations with that, and um, you know, in their bedroom or whatever. And you can just see that you know, loose connections, risk of fire, RCD is a method of protection against fire. So I get, I, and um, and you know, electric shock risk. So I can see why they've done that. I can see why they've considered that necessary. Okay, so we're now going to carry on talking about this ADS disconnection supply. We're going to refer it specifically to TN systems now, and this is this is important because a TN system has a combination with neutral and earth and a distributed protective conductor, either separate or combined with the earth. So when we actually have an earth fault, the earth fault loop return path will then utilize this distributed protective conductor. And that results in a path of negligible impedance again, little resistance. When we have a path of little resistance, we get high, significantly high fault current. And that's actually our objective. Our objective is to create a circuit supply it with a low impedance path so that the fault current is high. High fault current equals quick disconnection and we've just discussed disconnections. We just discussed that the disconnection time for the TN system was 0.4 seconds for a final circuit and 5 seconds for a distribution circuit. So it's it's important to actually we have a circuit and a current that's there that's going to achieve this rapid disconnection. So with TN systems, we're making sure that this, this is going to work, and that's what we're going to do next. So the characteristics of this circuit will work. With TN systems, it tells us the circuit's impedance shall fulfill the following. The ZS times the IA must be less than or equal to UO times Siemens. So ZS is the impedance in ohms of the fault loop comprising, uh, comprising the source the line conductor and the protective conductor. So the Z, this is this is where there should be a formula here. The ZS is the impedance of the source, ZE, the line, R1, and the protective conductor, R2. That's where that formula should really be written. 
IA is the amount of current that causes automatic operation of the required disconnecting device. So we would typically say, okay, how much current is required to achieve disconnection? We'll go with that current. UO is the nominal voltage that's uh, present in the fault. And then there's C-min, which is the um, a factor taken with regard, uh, taking into account the uh, voltage variations, um, which we had introduced in Amendment 3, which is 0.95. So that's um, all there in the regulations. It then says the phone types of protective device may be used for fault protection. Let's, let's remind ourselves we're talking here about fault protection. We can have an overcome protective device or an RCD. When RCD is used for fault protection, the circuit shall incorporate an overcome protective device in accordance with Chapter 43. So there'll still need there'll still be a need for overcome protection with regards to this ADS, and if you think about it, an RC is not going to disconnect a short circuit, is it? Because an RC works on imbalance and leakage current to earth, so we need to have an overcurrent protected device for short circuit scenario, maybe even an overload if overload protection is needed. Okay, so let's just get on looking at this table then. We have this table here. Well, that's actually just 41.3, which is the middle table. Let's look at that middle table, 41.3 first then. So this table gives us mass merfoil loop impedance ZS for the circuit breakers of 60898s and RCBOs of 61009s. And it gives us type Bs, type Cs and type Ds. And it gives us the rating of the breakers and it gives us the required uh, full loop impedances. The um, the way that these values are obtained is by understanding how much current is required to achieve this disconnection time and doing Ohm's Law with it. So if we went to Appendix 3, which is where the book goes a little bit, a little bit, a bit funny looking, in Appendix 3, we call these the time curve characteristics and we'll find one of these will be titled figure 3a4 type b circuit breakers to be SCN 60898 and RCBOs to be SCN 61009-1 the next page is the type c and the next page is the type d okay so when I look at this curve it tells me now I can look at it in two ways. I can either look at the table or I can actually look at the curves. But it tells me all the different protected devices. So there's a 6 amp device on there, a 10 amp, a 16, a 20, a 25, a 32, a 40, a 50, 63, 80, 100 and 125. All along the top of that curve line. I look down the left of this chart and it shows me time in seconds. So going from the very bottom as I go up, I go up in 0.1 intervals. Uh, 0.01 intervals, then I go up in 0.1 intervals, then in 1 intervals, and 10, and 100, and so on. I go along the bottom, I have current climbing in ten, uh, in 1s to 10, then 10s to 100, and 100 to 1,000, etc. If I wanted to figure out how much current is required to achieve 5 second disconnection, I'll just go up on the left to where I get to 5. So I go to 1, then I go 
two, three, four, five to the line. So in between one and ten, really. So one, two, three, four, five. And then go all the way along until I find the vertical line representing the device I'm looking at. So if I go to the 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 six, it then goes one, two, three, four, five, it shoots down, and then I notice that's a vertical line. I go across the current at the bottom, 10, 20, 30. That tells me that that six actually trips in 30 amp. But I could have just looked at the table because it tells me that there. Okay. So, you know, being, being able to read these is, these charts is, is pretty important. But um, they are fairly summarized. And a lot of the questions in this area will be summarized anyway. But let's, um, let's take a cat. Let's take a... A look at that. Let's let's go to the scenario. Well, this just shows you this. Let's go to this one. So we have a 3036 table. So if I go to the 3036 one, which is back on page. Well, there's two. There's one on page 366, and there's one on page 365. I'm looking at the one on page 365 because that's the one that has the 30 amp fuse in it. So if I look at the semi-enclosed fuses to BS3036 chart on page 365, I can see there's a 30 amp fuse on that. Now if I wanted to figure out the fuse requirement for 0.4 second disconnection, the table actually tells me 30 amp, 0.4 disconnection, 210. So I need 210 amps to disconnect a 30 amp fuse in 0.4 seconds. Now if I needed it to be 5 seconds instead, because it's a distribution circuit and not a final circuit, I only need 87 amps because it needs less current because it's a longer time. More current, quicker time. It, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. So understanding the required disconnection times is quite important. Alright, so... The BSCN 60898s we just looked at though, they didn't have times because they actually achieve the same level of current will achieve disconnection in 0.1 to 5 seconds. I don't know if you noticed that, but the same level of current due to the combined ways that the the, the, um, the MCV works with um, bimetallic strip and the actual electromagnetic field through the pot works very clever, but the same amount of current will achieve disconnection within 0.1 to 5 seconds. So there's only one value of current required. When we come to fuses though, like this 3036, there are varying amounts of current required to achieve varying disconnection times. So I need to calculate a current for 0.4 seconds. Uh, sorry, I need to calculate a resistance for 0.4 seconds, but I also need to calculate a resistance for 5 seconds, and I have to put them both into a table back in part 4. Well, they've done that. So if I go back to part 4, to where those tables were, in chapter 41. Uh, one of them is table 41.2 and the other one is table 41.4. When I look at table 41.2 and table 41.4, I'll actually, if I keep flicking between them, they both have the same fuses in them. They're both BS88s. Um, 882s, they're both BS883s and they're both 3036s. But I'll notice that the actual fuses in one of them only goes up to 63, whilst the other one goes all the way up to over 100. 
And then I'll realize when I look at the question, the actual uh, titles of these tables, that one of these tables is for a 0.4 second disconnection time. Remember, this is a TN section. So 0.4 second disconnection time for table 41.2. And table 41.4 is the five second disconnection. And as we just said here, different levels of current are needed to achieve disconnection times that are different. Therefore, different impedances are required to achieve those different current levels. So the airflow loop impedance is different for 0.4 seconds or 5 seconds. So we have two tables for that. Now it's, it's important that you can you can understand that because you know we'll use this a few times as we push through. But you can have in your exam a typical question would say the required value of airflow impedance to achieve automatic disconnection of a final circuit not exceeding 32 amps, so you go 0.4, or of a distribution circuit you go you go five, and you you know you have to decide which table and some people do get get um, caught out with that because City and Guild is a good example would give you the answer from both tables. So if they said you know a thirty uh, a thirty amp three or three six, they would actually give you one point oh four and two point five one. The bastards! But they would because you know you can easily take it from the wrong table. So it's important you understand that those tables achieve different disconnection times. And the reason we need different disconnection times is because we have to achieve um, this, you know, the difference between a distribution circuit and a final circuit. And again, if we think about what we talked about yesterday or in the previous video, we, we, we did talk about the need for um, dis, um, division and selectivity and discrimination so it's important that final circuits isolate before distribution circuits because those distribution circuits could obviously go to other other final circuits as well so this is all part of selectivity to make sure that the um the the protected device local to the point of fault uh, disconnects first okay so we're going to come back to look at this area when we look at sizing of protective conductors and sizing of live conductors. We're going to use this data and we will repeat on it. But um, I'm not going to carry on doing examples on how to determine earth loop impedances at this point because we need to push on through the rest of this chapter and the rest of this video. But if you do want more info on it, then just you know hit me up and I'll uh, provide some more content and some more information on this section. Not a problem. Okay, so that talks about the TN, and then as I said earlier at the beginning of this video, uh, TN uses the supply protective conductor. It's a very low impedance because it's a big copper or a big lead sheath or a big steel cable, whatever. So it's a low impedance. We can use it to achieve high full currents. Unlike the TN, the TT system, where we have the mass of Earth and we do not have this low impedance pathway for our Earth loop return path. This is why TT systems is separately uh, separately covered. We can't use the earth full loop impedances for the final circuits for TT systems because we just won't achieve this low impedance. If we can, we can. It does allow that. It does say with TT systems um, at Formula 1.5.2, it does say we can use an overcurrent protected device. But for you to use an overcurrent protected device, you have to achieve that current. So, you know, if you can, you can. If you can't, just you, you, you shut your stuff. You've got to use an RCD. And the reason we have to consider using the RCD is because the RCD doesn't actually work on an excessive value of fault current. It works on obviously monitoring the currents needs to and determining there to be an imbalance. 
so they're a lot more sensitive and they're a lot more practicable for TT systems to identify a leakage or a fault to earth so that's why we use them and we install them obviously at the origin because that's the point of point of isolation now but you'll notice unlike the TN systems where we said okay well that voltage is going down that protective conductor through that circuit we are going to verify that using a 230 volts um, voltage in this earth fault loop impedance here under form 1.5.3 it actually says I'm jumping ahead now. So here it actually says, it's just an illustration of the electro for a TT system, that if it's used for full protection, the following conditions will be fulfilled. The disconnection time shall be re that required by Form 1.3.2.2 or 3.2.4. So the TT system for a final circuit up to 32 amp, we said was, think about that, yeah, point, point 0.2. 0.2 seconds, yeah, yeah. Uh, final circuit was one. Sorry, uh, distribution circuit was one. So we have quicker disconnection times required there. So we have to achieve those. And also it says the RA times I delta N must be less than or equal to 50 volts. Now the RA, it says, is the sum of the resistance of the earth electrode and the protective conductor connecting it to the exposed conductive parts in ohms. So it's resistance of the main earth and terminal point of the electrode to the exposed conductive parts within the system. Um, I delta N is the, um, the rate of operating current of the RCD, but we're talking here about an earth imbalance. So we're saying milliamps, 100 milliamps, 300 milliamps, 500 milliamps, 30 milliamps, whatever that is, okay? There's, no, there's nothing that says it has to be 30 milliamps. It has to be appropriate. But it does say the voltage there must be no more than 50 volts. Uh, it must be less than or equal to 50 volts. Alright, so when we actually install an electrode, we, we know that we have a guidance there. It gives you in note 2 of table 41.5. And it does say, you know, a value exceeding 200 ohms may not be considered as stable. But we take a value of earth electrode resistance, we have a value of RA. What we then need to verify is the amount of current required to disconnect the unseen and imbalance. Well, that's just the milliamps. So we take the maximum earth fall loop impedance in ohms, ZS, as given in this table, yeah, is dictated by 50 volts over the RCD. Okay, and that's why you'll see a lot of people with 30 million parsties and domestics will now put 1667 on them. Because 50 volts over 0 0.03 is 1667. Um, when we do a design, we're supposed to consider selectivity. We want to have an RC that's going to actually, you know, work but not disconnect all the time. So it's better practice to try to actually install a larger RC like a 100 or a 300, but we need to verify the RA first. So if you have an RA and your RA is somewhere around the realm of 500, then you know that you can use a 100 milliamp R CD. So it's it's always you know you could say it's selective. You need to verify that the electrode resistance or the RA um, is measured, verified it's good and effective, and you can then use that to determine what RC protection is required. Don't just throw a 30 milliamp in there. Where overcome protective devices used, the phone condition shall be fulfilled. ZS times IA must be less than or equal to UO times C min. So it uses the impedance again there. 
Okay, so that covers TN systems and TT systems. We then have 411.6, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on because they don't really touch it, but it's kind of a whole video content itself. But what we're talking here about is the IT system. It's a very, very, very good system. Okay, the IE is obviously it's an isolating, it's like an isolation earth, um, earthing system. And if you remind yourself of the earthing arrangements, the whole thing with the IT system is we have a distributed system, but the earth has a high impedance connected between it and the live conductors. So we don't really have, we don't have a neutral on this system because neutral, you know, is neutral because of its reference of an earth. Um, there's a high impedance between that. So on IT systems, a bit like with reduced low voltage systems, the uh, there is no neutral. It's kind of like a live conductor and a live conductor with a potential difference between the two. So here we have the the, uh, the cables distributed and you'll notice the equipment is connected between two of the lives there. Okay, so they're not neutral. They're all at the same potential differences between each other. And so you'll get maybe 230 volts between the two or whatever. But here's the magic of this system. The magic of the IT system is that when a single fault occurs, such as is illustrated here to the exposed conductive part, the actual protective conductor will actually operate, but due to the high impedance, think about Ohm's law, the high impedance in that pathway will result in a very, very, very small trickle current. Um, almost like a capacitive current maybe uh, so little that exposed conductive parts and things will not become at live potentials to the rest of the working area it's isolated from the working area the high impedance results in very very low current but the problem is we've got it operational but do we know about it and quite often we won't when these faults occur Currents flow to the protective conductors, but the very high impedance results in very low currents, so we don't notice it. So these systems require monitoring systems, uh, insulation monitoring systems, or residual current monitoring systems to actually identify these uh, changes in currents. And that would result in them um, needing an alarm system, which is fine, but it means that their, their, their use needs, obviously, someone to respond and Quite often they'll be used in a location like a, you know, uh, in a medical location or maybe in a data center or somewhere. But they'll be used in a scenario where they'll have someone uh, who is skilled or instructed to act if there's a, a scenario to isolate, to remove, or whatever. But where they are useful is we talked about you know basic and full protection. The IT system, whilst we use whilst with TN and TT, we've established fault protection to achieve disconnection high impedances or RCD disconnection. The IT system will actually identify the fault condition. It will then allow the pathway to earth to flow at a very low level due to the high impedance, but the monitoring system will alarm people, but at the same time, it will remain operational. It will remain operational. And this is a very, very good thing for continuity of supply. So when you have sites that require continuity, um, IT systems are a very, very um, ideal solution. They just require that extra bit of management. They require that extra bit of um, nurturing and care because you shouldn't obviously um, wire into it, you know, parts of a separate system because you can then completely void 
the protective measure. If you were to connect, for example, to the exposed conductive parts of an IT system that had that significantly high impedance, if you were to then connect them to a common earth part which has the low impedance, you're then voiding the protective measure altogether. So they do re they do require a little bit of um, of uh, nurturing and a little bit of monitoring. Um, they have alarm systems and things like that, but they're a very very good system and. I can do it. I can do a dedicated video on how they work and how they should be tested, um, if you want. But um, for for completeness, that's really all we need to cover is just an understanding of why they are used and where they are used and why we're going to see them later on in medical locations. Um, and that's it. But that, that's that's all we'll cover with them for now. Okay. There's a bit of again because we use the earth, you know, as a pathway. We do need to make sure the voltage there will not be more than 50 volts. The voltage can be up to 50 volts. It's the current. It's the current that we limit through the high impedance. And that is, that's what's good about this method of protection. It's a very, very safe system. Just requires a little bit of babysitting most of the time. We then have, after the IT system, we have FEL 411.7. Um, we have Selv and Pelv, which are their own protective measure in their own means, but obviously Felv is a functional extra low voltage. And so because the protective conductor goes across the transformer but works as a functional purpose and not a protective purpose, it has to be considered as a piece of equipment that works with ADS. It has to go onto ADS as a system and it, it in itself cannot be considered as its own protective measure because it doesn't really in, in its own way try to achieve protection. Okay. We then have further down 411.8 the reduced low voltage system. The reduced low voltage system we often see on construction sites and things like that where you have your 110 transformers and stuff. The benefit of the reduced low voltage system is we have an isolation transformer here. Where's my mouse gone there? An isolation transformer here. And we have the winding. You'll notice that the earth comes across, it has the center tap, and it comes across and runs with the circuits. So obviously all the equipment can have a reference to earth. But it also has a link to the center of the secondary winding. And this is the magic really with a reduced low voltage system. We've mentioned before that 50 volts is considered the desired value of voltage in a fault scenario. Anything over 50 really um, can, can be considered as dangerous in electric shock. But the the problem with the problem with having circuits like Selv or Pelv um, in construction world is there's not enough power there to actually get work done. So. Obviously, you may charge your battery at 18 volts, 24 volts, but you know when you actually go to do the work, that'll get you so some way through joists and some way through a wall. When you want to drill like a 9 or a 12-inch hole for a core cutter or something like that, you're going to want to go and get the actual mains powered equipment. <clears throat> and that's because we need the voltage and we need the power and we need the power to do the work. So from a safety perspective, we still need this, this voltage to do work on site. So what we do is we use this, this uh, transformer. And the way, the way it works is quite simple. So you have a live conductor and a live conductor. And that's important to know. So when you have a reduced low voltage piece of equipment, the, the three cables are protective conductor and two live conductors. They're not live and neutral. Not you know one of, Both of them can go fault to earth. Okay, L1 to earth and L2 to earth, as you see here. 
They can both fault to earth and they can both fault to earth at 55 volts. So if I had a fault between L2 and earth, a short, a damaged piece of equipment, what will happen is the current will flow from there and it will then flow back and you'll see it goes into half the winding. So as it's only going through half the winding, it's only half the voltage within this earth fault loop. So we have half the voltage in the fault scenario. To add a little bit to this, there is a lot of um, there's there's a lot of development needed in testing because a lot of people don't know how to test these kind of systems because technically with this kind of system you want to do an earth fault loop impedance external twice because you have two of them and a ZS within the system twice L1 to earth and L2 to earth and whilst they would technically be the same you should be recording them and testing them suitably similarly you should use a test instrument that uh, works at that voltage and also you want one that's a two lead one and not a three lead because when you have a three lead to do a ZS test you'd normally put the neutral on to zero to combine that but there is no neutral distributed here so you shouldn't use a 3D tester, but that's kind of going a little bit extra here onto reduced low voltage systems. But what do we need to know in the regs? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us with reduced low voltage systems, it tells us that between 411.8.1.2, three phases, the uh, value of the voltage shall not exceed 63.5 volts to earth. Single phase, 55 volts to earth. So that's the 55 volts given here. It tells us about basic protection being 416.1, IPXXB, IPXXD respectively. It then tells us requires a fault protection. It actually tells us that at the end of that paragraph, the earth will impedance every point of the utilization, including socket outlets, shall be such the disconnection time does not exceed five seconds. It's considered that because that there is a lowered value here that the longer duration can occur. There has been common myth that maybe because the potential voltages aren't anywhere near this, they're probably nearer 30 volts, they are in the ELV world and technically they shouldn't require a maximum disconnection time at all. Um, there is argument for that, but it's kind of rubbish because you still need to protect against fire. Um, so you should achieve disconnection within a time frame. We did the ZSs just now, TN systems, and we looked at how much impedance is required to achieve the current, to achieve the time. Now, the difference between that and this, though, is the voltages. And so they've created a ZS table here just for reduced low voltage. So this ZS table, same principle, the amount of current required to achieve the disconnection time, we know that's five seconds. So the amount of current required to disconnect a BSCN 60898 type B in five seconds, but it's respective to the voltage. In this case, the voltage is 55 or 63.5. And you can see, obviously, that changes the ZSs accordingly. So do pay attention. Again, in your exam, you can have a question asking you the maximum full loop impedance. And if it says reduced low voltage, then you know you're here. This is the ZS table for reduced low voltage. And then read it again very carefully. Does it say single phase or three phase? Because that will tell you which column to go for. A single phase circuit is the 55 volt column. A three phase circuit is the 63.5 volt column. Read it carefully, understand that. 
So we have to have this separate earth for loop impedance values because we have different voltages and we then require different levels of current. So we have to have different levels of impedance. Um, that's going to close up on ADS as the principal protective measure. It's a lot of information, but we are going to repeat it as we go through because this is the most common protective measure. The whole principle of installing an earth for loop low enough to achieve a current that is high enough to turn off in the time frame that is quick enough is the it's the most common thing that we chase around and verify i'm going to mention a lot later on how that can actually snag you and you should really be verifying a lot more information with your earth for loop impedances when you do zs's you should be doing a lot more with your zs's than checking them to the table and writing them down on a pad you should be rechecking re a lot of other stuff which we'll come to as we go through but closing ADS, let's move on to the next required protective measure, which is going to be a lot, lot, lot more brief, and that is 412, double or reinforced insulation. Now here, we have to achieve basic and full protection. So basic protection is by basic insulation, and full protection is provided by a supplementary layer of insulation. Or, basic and full protection are provided by a single reinforced layer of insulation. Right, so common way you will identify this is you'll have with equipment for example the class 2 symbol now whilst I said earlier on general protective measures are allowed you know throughout the home it does say here if this protective measure is used as the sole protective measure where the whole installation is intended then it must be under effective supervision so you can't use this in the home or in, in an office environment as a sole measure but you know you can use it for things like your your light fittings and stuff like that as you know you probably you probably install many light fittings that are class two absolutely mm -hmm. fine you just need to verify that that construction class is maintained and that it's suitable for use absolutely fine a couple of things we need to know with this it gives us the symbol the class two symbol 412.2.1.1 the equipment shall be of the following types it then tells us electrical equipment having basic insulation only shall have supplementary insulation applied in the process of erecting it. So if the equipment is just basic only during the erection process, there'll be supplementary insulation applied to it where there's more risk exposed to it. But when we do that, it does illustrate the symbol, which is the earth symbol with the cross to it, telling us that we must not earth this equipment. Um, Another area I've seen this discussed um, and used is obviously with Amendment Three. We had the we had the uh, metal fuse boards in domestics, and a lot of electricians started to raise the question about TT systems. Because with TT systems, you're supposed to obviously bring your bring your tails to coming in, but you have your RCD. And the question was, well, the RCD would go into the board, but the uh, you know the protection would be after that point. So how is the board protected, or how is the cables coming into the board protecting that? Um, and the main reason it's they are protecting that is because the meter tails are actually um, double insulated. So the protective measure of double insulation occurs in every installation at the meter point to your main earthing terminal, for example, I mean, or to your isolator in your fuse board because meter tails are double insulated. As long as we installed them in the method that actually maintains that construction class. If you, for example, go to a, tail, uh, a meter tail or a service block and you see that the outside grey has been stripped far back outside of the enclosure to identify the brown and the blue, 
technically, whilst I can see that that's so that you can identify one from the other, you've removed the double insulation layer, and the you know, and now the protective measure is pretty much void. It's a very common thing I would see on an EICI. If I see brown and blue outside of the meter or outside of the fuse board, then that technically needs improvement. Um, if I open a fuse board up, I should expect to see the tails glanded, you know, in a in a insulating gland, and then the stri stripping should be sheathed back all the way to the point of the uh, the sheathing should be on the cables all the way to the, the isolator. They should not be stripped far out of that because you're removing the class two protection. Uh, anything else? We'll, we'll move on to the next protective measure, I think, and that is four one three. Now this is electrical separation. Now electrical separation, basic protection is provided by basic insulation of live parts, barriers or enclosures. Full protection is by simple separation of the separated circuit from other circuits. So the isolating transformer is where the fault protection is achieved and that is isolating the equipment connected to the isolating transformer from the supply side. So it's a separate earthing world in itself. Um, this is a typical generating set that goes to one piece of equipment. Now, if this generating set went to one piece of equipment, then loops to another and then to another, um, this is where we'd be supplying more than one item of equipment and we'd have to have insulated bonding or insulated equipment communicating between the two. This then becomes a tighter area that requires more levels of skill and control and so it would not be applicable as a general protective measure, and we'll see that later on towards the back. If the isolating transformer is just one piece of equipment, such as your shaver, you can plug one thing in, then that's fine. All right, that's what this complies to. The whole principle being your supply comes in to the transformer, then obviously the windings on the transformer pass across there's no electrical connection across the transformer. The protective conductor comes in, it terminates, it does not carry across to the secondary. This secondary side does not know of the primary side. The equipment connected to the secondary side has no potential reference to the primary because nothing comes across. It's its own little electrical system. So if you were to handle a piece of equipment plugged into this shaver, if it came live in your hand, you'd have no potential to any other part around you. If you were to then take another transformer, oh, sorry, another socket off of the same transformer and you plug in something into that one and you have the one plugged into this one and they both become damaged, then you have potential. So you must have only one item connected to the transformer, but that doesn't mean your bathroom can't have five of these in it because you have five separate cases of electrical separation. That's absolutely fine. Electrical separation actually also carries on into self, and and um, we have that illustrated here as the last of the general protective measures, self and pelv. Now, pelv isn't separation, but self is. So it's separated extra low voltage. So the same principle as this, but the windings are fewer, and that results in the voltage stepping down. The voltage stepping down gets us into that safer voltage, and now we're in that area where we're using a voltage that we like that is safe and you'll notice when we get to part seven that these methods of protection self pelv most often self are the only ones left that are considered acceptable in 
zone zeros of baths and zeros of swimming pools or you know higher risk areas due to the uh, like confined uh, conductive locations with restricted movement because if anything goes wrong you're then using a voltage that's not really going to harm you still though in those circumstances they may restrict the voltage further so whilst would say self would be 50 volts or less some scenarios would actually say oh no 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 that's going to be 25 volts or less or 12 volts or less so there are restrictions on self but self itself it's electrical separation and extra low voltage. PELV is actually extra low voltage, but it's not separation. So you'll see with SELV the earth stops. With PELV the earth carries across. So we have equipment connected to an extra low voltage transformer, but the earth has come along with it. Yeah, could be exposed conductive parts, could be for some other reason. It's not functional though, because that was felt. Okay, but for some reason, the equipment requires a protective conductor, so we utilize uh, PELV as the protective means there. Regards to what the regulations say, it's again similar basic protection to four, uh, basic installations to 416 and other circuits. One of the things we do need to realize with regards to SELV and PELV is we must segregate them. So it says there in general, 414.1.1, protection by extra low voltage is a protective measure which consists of either two different extra low voltage systems, SELV and PELV. Protection by extra low voltage provided by SELV or PELV will require limitation of voltage in the SELV or PELV system to the upper limit of voltage band 1, that's 50 volts. Voltage band 1 goes up to 50 volts AC, 120 volt ripple free DC. Protective separation will be required of self from PELV and from all other circuits other than self and PELV circuits and basic insulation between self or PELV circuits and other self or PELV systems. And for self systems only, basic insulation between self systems and Earth. So what it's saying is we need to separate self and PELV from LV, segregation. We also need to segregate self from PELV because self doesn't like Earth, PELV does like Earth. And then self just needs to be separated from Earth. Uh, and obviously I just, that's, that's common sense with regards to the way we segregate it. Sources for self, isolating transformers, current degree, and that's pretty, pretty mediocre stuff. Okay, if we then go over to 414.4.5, we've got, if the nominal voltage is to exceed 25 volts AC or 60 volts DC, or if the equipment is immersed, then basic protection shall be provided for self and PEL circuits by installation the constant 416.1, barriers are enclosed in the constant 416.2. Basic protection is generally unnecessary in normal dry conditions for cell circuits that do not exceed these. So what that actually means is bare conductors, <coughs> which you may see in some lighting displays, etc. Bare conductors is allowed for circuits up to 25 volts. If you go over 25 volts, you require basic insulation on your cell or PEL system. 415, additional protection. So we talked about the protective measures. The protective measures must achieve basic protection and fault protection. 
But sometimes, you know, we just need more protection. Um, let's call that additional protection then. This is where there's a combination of circumstances or external influence that, you know, there's just extra need or extra desire to provide an extra layer of protection. So Form 5.1.1 tells us the use of RSTs with a rated residual operating current not exceeding 30 milliamp is recognized in AC systems as additional protection in the event of failure of the provision of the basic protection or provision for full protection or by carelessness by the users. So, you know, something like the lawnmower lead is the common example. Protective measures are there, but the user has just been careless and drilled and gone over it, or drilling a cable in a wall. <clears throat> the use of RSTs is not recognized as a sole means of protection and does not obviate the need to apply one of the protective measures specified in Form 1.414. So it's additional protection, not sole protection. So using an RCD alone is not sufficient. We must have ADS with an RCD for most of our wiring systems. The alternative additional protection is supplementary equipotential bonding. Equipotential, again, we're going to use that word a lot. If you ever struggle with that word, just think of equipotential as equal voltage, okay? Keeping things simple. So... Supplementary bonding shall be included for all simultaneously accessible exposed conductive parts of fixed equipment and its strange conductive parts, including where practicable, the main metallic reinforcement or constructional reinforcement concrete. The equipotential bonding system shall be connected to the protective conductors of all equipment, including those of socket outlets. So if supplementary bonding detection is required, it will be required between exposed conductive parts and exchange conductive parts and exposed conductive parts and exposed conductive parts. And it's trace conductive parts or extraneous conductive parts. Whatever. It depends on if it's needed. The question is, is, is it needed? That's the question. Um, and the answer is, uh, um, in sections like 702, swimming pools, um, agricultural and horticultural, which is 705. Yeah, 705. They'll say, yeah. Supplementary bond. Supplementary bond in this area, supplementary bond in that area, fine. Other other sections like 701, um, they'll say you may need to bond, you may not need to bond. And, and understanding when we need to bond is, um, you know, it can be a challenge. But it's quite simple when you look at this. It tells us the resistance between simultaneously accessible exposed conductive parts and strange conductive parts shall fulfill the following. R must be less than or equal to 50 volts over IA. Right. So the que the, que the question is, let's 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 look at this picture here. I should really have had a better picture. But let's look at this. Right. Let's say this piece of current using equipment is my oven in the kitchen, and coming down behind that oven is a gas pipe. So I have an exposed conductive part which is in arm's reach of an exposed conductive part, and I'm thinking, do I need to bond there? And I'm not sure. The answer is the resistance between those two you measure. Let's say I get 50 ohms, random, random number. I now need to say, well, that must be less than or equal to 50 volts over IA. So what's IA? Well, IA is the actual current that will actually disconnect this. Now, 
If this is an oven, let's say this is an oven and a fuse board in the home, it's likely to be on a BSEN 60898 or a 61009. Now, if it's on a 61009 with an RCD, then for an earth fault scenario, it's going to trip in 30 milliamp. So for all intensive purposes, 50 volts over IA of 30 milliamp is 50 over 0.03, which we said back in TT systems, gives us 1667. And this is why you'll see a lot of supplementary bonding is no longer really needed because the thing that can become faulty has 30 milliamp RCD protection at the origin. So the 30 milliamp for that scenario requires 1667. It's very unlikely you'll have 1667 ohms between accessible, exposed, and extraneous conductive parts. But if there is no RCD, because maybe you're in a shop, maybe, I don't know, maybe for some reason, maybe it's a 40 amp final circuit, I don't know. You have to work out the current. And so you go to the book and you work out the current. So let, let me just do this. If I go to appendix three, let's say it's a 40 amp 60898. And I said I measured 50 ohms. Right, so 40 amp 60898, type B. Appendix three tells me. Forty amp B. It tells me it requires two hundred amp for instantaneous disconnection. Now I have to be careful how much I use that book though, because I need to understand the real full current relative to the earth full loop impedance. But for now, let's go with two hundred. So two hundred amp will achieve disconnection. So fifty volts over two hundred. Fifty volts is the touch voltage. Get calculator out. So. The resistance must be less than or equal to 50 volts over IA. So 50 over 200.25. Okay. So the resistance between that oven and that gas pipe needs to be less than 0.25 ohms. Because if it's more than 0.25 ohms, with regards to the amount of currents going to be required to turn that cooker off, the voltage across this gap could climb over 50 volts yeah i have 50 ohms between these two i need to now supplementary bond them i'll supplementary bond them to bring them below 0.25 so the question of do you need supplementary bonding is always dictated by how many amps is required to disconnect this equipment within the required time um I can go, again. I can go through a number of examples with supplementary bonding, but um, it is just Ohm's law with 50 volts. So you know, um, we can do more if we need to on that. Do let me know. Moving on, we have 416, which we've mentioned a few times now. This is the basic protection area, and it tells us basic insulation of live parts. Live parts shall be completely covered with insulation material, which can only be removed by destruction. For equipment, the insulation shall comply with the relevant standards. So, insulation is only insulation if we can only remove it by destruction, such as a stripping tool. Um, if you can just peel it off, it's not really considered as effective insulation. Enclosures. Live parts will be inside enclosures or behind barriers, providing at least a degree of protection of IPXXB or IP2X. Okay, so the outside enclosure will achieve IP2X and IP4X if it's a horizontal salt surface. Then when you open up a panel, 
the intermediate barriers may be needed. So if I open up this panel and I'm there to work on an inverter or a transformer for the for the actual control equipment through to a PLC, I shouldn't be worried about the barriers in front of the isolator or this switch gear. There should be no live parts within, uh, you know, beyond IP2X, you know, finger safe that we use. Uh, so intermediate barriers are very important, all right? And you'll get a lot of this in switch gear and control gear. Okay. Um, that's 416, uh, 416.2.4. Where necessary to remove the barrier opening enclosure or remove parts of the enclosures, this will only be done by the use of a cure at all or after disconnection of the supply or with an intermediate barrier. Oh. Oh, it's got cold. Uh, 417, obstacles and placing out of reach. I've got no more slides to be honest, Brett, but we're right at the end. 417 isn't a general protective measure. This protective measure is putting it up there, out of the way. Um, you know, so this can be a control type of type of scenario, such as a, a substation. You may see it in factories though, for like cranes that go overhead. There may be exposed live parts, but you know they're up there, and they there shouldn't be anyone up there while they're in operation. Um, so those are those are the requirements. But with regards to what placing out of reach actually is, we do have this drawing, figure 417 which tells us the limit of arm's reach. And um, so if you look at the images, you can see there, uh, the top left kind of shows you that the reaching limit is two and a half meters. So beyond that can, can be considered as beyond arm's reach from the standing point beneath. And then to close it, we'll talk about 418, which is protective measures for application only where the installation is controlled or under the supervision of skilled or instructed persons. So these are special scenarios, a non-conducting location, which is obviously an Earth-3 area, um, Earth-3 bonding, which again is bonding between parts, but no connection to Earth. Um, I had actually seen this once before at the, the McLaren factory. So um, picture, if you will, you have, a, you, have, you have a workshop or a bench of connected equipment and, you know, calibration equipment and stuff, but you need to make sure that that equipment does not... Come exposed to static shock or any discharges of current charged up by the workers, so they they have no connection to earth, so you cannot discharge any energy or just you know. And there's lots of capacitors to take energy away, but still, whilst you're working between parts that are you know within proximity to each other, you need to make sure you don't pass any energy from one to the other. So they were bonded, but they were not earthed. So there was bonding to make that common between them but the ability to discharge a current down on earth was absent uh, and we mentioned electrical separation earlier on we said that you can't put more than one item of equipment on one isolation transformer in case you created loops between the two bits of equipment you can do that with generating sets for example but it is a special scenario and that is in 418.3 okay um uh, and 419 provisions where automatic discussion according to regulation 411.3.2 is not feasible. So this is saying if 411.3.2 is not feasible, 411.3.2 was the the whole um, the whole purpose of ADS really, wasn't it? Hang on. Do, 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 do. Yeah, the um, 
is automatic disconnection in case of a fault. So that's where we started talking about the the um, the times the TN or the TT and the 0.4 and the, the uh, 0.2 seconds or the five and the one second disconnection times basically. That's so that says if that's not feasible, then we'll have electronic equipment limiting short circuit current. So if there is a fault scenario, there will be electronic equipment that limits it because that you know we're not able to achieve that high level. Or the required extension times cannot be achieved by a protective um, device. Then 419.2 and 419.3 are applicable. And again, it's talking about electronic converters that will, it says there, voltage greater than 50 volts. Yeah, so it's, it's using converters or this equipment that will take that and then convert it to an exposure of no more than 50 volts. Um, fairly boring stuff. But that brings me to the end of chapter 41 and that was a lot and I think that's enough for this video. Going back to the beginning of the video, the fundamental principle is to achieve protection against electric shocks for persons, livestock and property and this section tells us that we have to achieve basic and fault protection. Basic protection is against a fault-free scenario. Fault protection is against a single fault condition. And then we said what the general protective measures are. All about the extension of supply, class two double insulation, electrical separation, and self and pelve. So those all have basic and fault. So if you had an exam and it said, which one of the following has fault protection? Barriers, obstacles, insulation, and pelve. You know that it's pelve because pelve has basic and fault. Okay. So do do think about these protective measures as basic and fault, basic and fault, all right, and understand what basic is and what fault is. Uh, with regards to the protective measures themselves, um, ADS, yeah, 411, there's a lot of information in there with the ZSs, etc. Uh, disconnection times, get an understanding on those, uh, become familiar with those. Um, we can do some revision exercise on that, and I'll probably provide some sample questions just to kind of uh practice that because that kind of thing does need a bit of practice just kind of familiarize yourself with it you know is it a distribution circuit is it a final circuit is it over 30 uh, you know all that kind of stuff it needs to become a bit more second nature so that you ain't dawdling around or wasting your time with that but uh we'll finish this video on this one and next video will be protection against thermal effects which will be a lot, you know, be a lot more shorter. This is quite a large, it's quite a large video. So take some time to, you know, consume this, to revise this, to take this in. And then uh, I'll see you in the next video, chapter 42, Protection Against Thermal Effects. See you later.